Good morning again, everybody. Uh, I want to say how much I appreciate being with you here today and uh, all month. I'm really enjoying preaching for Glenn while he's on sabbatical, and I'm so appreciative of Mary-Kate and Tim for keeping me on track and doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But more importantly, being in worship with them every Sunday has been really wonderful, and all of you. So today's sermon is an invitation to find a place of rest. If it isn't obvious, we're talking about, excuse me, more than physical rest here, right? We're talking about emotional rest, spiritual rest, uh, psychological rest, all of those things. And a metaphor that you often hear about finding a place of rest is comparing the spiritual life to a lake or the ocean. And there can be a lot of churn up at the surface, right? There are waves and hail and rain and all kinds of churn and activity. But deep down in the depths of the lake or the ocean, it's very calm. No matter how much upheaval is going on on the surface, it's very calm down below. Now, as you know, uh, the sermon series this month is inspired by the work of Fran- Frank Ostenseski, who is a, a Buddhist chaplain, and he actually is a scuba diver. And so he really goes down deep. And he talks about one experience he had where an unexpected storm kicked up while he was underwater. And so he was in this place of deep quiet and deep calm and literal darkness. And then he slowly came up, because you have to come back up slowly to protect your lungs. And his head clears the surface of the water, and he's in the middle of this gale that, as I say, came up very unexpectedly. And he said it was really, really startling to see how churned up everything was when he had been in this place of deep quiet. So a place of rest can be a physical place. It can be this sanctuary on a Sunday morning. It might be your backyard looking at your garden. Uh, It might be traveling. Sometimes that's a place of rest for people. Uh, Sometimes when folks are in the throes of parenting young children, a place of rest is the bathroom where you can lock the door for a minute and 30 seconds. Um, I can see some of you really know what I'm talking about. Uh, So it can be a physical place. The place of rest can also be a relationship. It can be a relationship that gives you a sense of calm, safety, quiet, a sense of home. And you are truly blessed if you have those relationships in your life. It can also be an activity. It could be pulling weeds even, or making music, or riding your bike. For some people, cooking is a real place of rest. It is not for me, but for some people I have heard, cooking is a place of rest. Prayer and meditation can be a place of rest. Your faith, your confidence in the faith of your ancestors can be a place of rest. 
let's identify what it is not, what a place of rest is not. It is not that space where you've gotten rid of all the anger, all the fear, all the worry, all the frustration, all the desire, all of the anxiety, all of the exhaustion. We will never be rid of all of that in this earthly life. So it's not that place. It's not to say that it doesn't matter. A place of rest is not coming to a place where you say, well, all of those things don't matter to me. Those storms that batter us as human beings don't matter to me. It doesn't mean it's hopeless, that you said, well, there's nothing we can do about this. And it doesn't mean, God forbid, it's all part of God's plan. No. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the churn and the disruption and the fear and upset in your life is part of God's plan for your life. So this is why the lake metaphor works so well, because all the churn is still there. It's still going on, but we're able to drop below it or maybe beyond it. Simple, not easy, big difference. Jesus knew how to do this. He was surrounded by upheaval and churn every day of his earthly life. Maybe not when he was five, but we don't know about that part of his life. It was never-ending. Now, some people would say that he was able to survive all that churn because he was so full of the God consciousness, so full of the divine spirit, that it didn't impact him in the same way. I don't believe that was the reason at all. The great uniqueness of Jesus is that he was a fully human being, that he walked and moved the earth much like most of us. He cried when he was sad. He became enraged when he faced injustice and things that upset him deeply. He got frustrated when he was misunderstood. You get that, don't you? We've all been misunderstood at times, and we know what that feels like. He faced that every single day. Here's some words from a theologian, Jennifer Colland, who speaks about being misunderstood. She asks, how many times have we been misunderstood? characterized in ways that truly do not describe who we are. How frustrating is it for someone to assume they know something about you based on where you grew up or where you went to school, your gender identity or the color of your skin? These are all themes that Julie has already hit in talking about the book for children today, Amazing Grace. A number of factors you may be judged on that simply do not capture the complexity of who you really are. Colland writes, while we often generalize based on a minimal amount of information, these characterizations can often be inaccurate, and that is why they are called stereotypes. Jesus' frustration in our passage for today is that the truth, him, the person, the truth was right in front of everybody and they just couldn't see it. He calls out a whole generation of people of his time 
who can't see it. I always think of that song from the Broadway musical Kids. What's the matter with kids today whenever I hear this passage? So he calls out this whole generation, but he could just as easily be calling out our generation. Just as easily. They couldn't see the truth. And often we can't see the truth. Some of you know that we uh, have what's called the lectionary, which is a three-year cycle of looking at key texts in the Bible. Not all of them, but key texts. The last time this passage came up was three years ago this summer. So think about what was going on three years ago, or maybe you don't really want to think back to it. We were in the midst of COVID. We were staying at home. We were spraying sanitizer on our grocery bags and Amazon boxes. It was the summer in the United States of racial reckoning. Ahmaud Arbery had been murdered, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. It was a summer of upheaval and churn. That theologian Jennifer Collins, she wrote about this three years ago. Remember you were weary three years ago? In a world where the truth is often presented as debatable, she wrote this three years ago, and lies are painted as truth, we can become weary. Anybody out there weary? No, y'all fine? Anybody weary? I found myself... My heart felt very weary when I read a story this week that came out of Western Canada. There was a track meet, an elementary school age track meet. There was a nine-year-old girl named Heidi who her event was shot put. The grandfather of another student who was also competing began questioning her gender. Heidi's mother reported that this grandfather, who also had a family member, a child competing, said her child was either a boy or transgender and should be disqualified. He's throwing all this at a nine-year-old. The grandfather would tell the story differently. Heidi's mom says her daughter thinks of herself as a girl, uses the pronouns she, her, and just happens to like wearing her hair short. But suddenly this gentleman, I might have used the wrong word there, (laughs) this grandfather uh, decided that this was a transgender issue, and he actually asked the officials, I'm literally pounding the pulpit, whoever does that in this day and age, he actually asked the officials if he could see this child's birth certificate. Heidi, nine years old, left the track meet sobbing. How can we not be soul-weary at the division in our world? How can we not be? 
at the rush to judge people when we don't know anything about them. And by the way, we don't know any more about the grandfather than we know about the child. You've heard me say that uh, this sermon series is inspired by Frank Ostenseski. The title of his book is The Five Invitations, What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. I was introduced to this book during my time as the Interim Minister of Spiritual Life and Learning here at First Community Church. Here's Ostaseski on the importance of wondering. A good question has heart, arising from a deep love to discover what is true. We will never know who we are and why we are here if we do not ask uncomfortable questions. I found it interesting in preparing to preach this morning that I find this Buddhist chaplain of the 21st century and this peasant prophet of over 2,000 years ago, and both of their words and their thinking intersects at this point of longing for people to know what is true. Now, here is the question that literally stopped me in my tracks this week. I mean, took my breath away when I read these words. Do we need to die before we rest in peace? Do you need to die before you rest in peace? Gosh, I hope not. What it means to rest in peace is different for everybody. I mean, you may need to make peace with the mistakes you've made throughout your life. We've all made them. You may need to make peace with relationships in your life that haven't turned out to be what you had hoped they would be. Maybe you need to make peace with the fact that you can't save the world. Maybe you haven't achieved all that you set out to achieve in your life. Heaven forbid, in this culture, maybe you haven't achieved your full potential. Maybe you did achieve all the success, all the fame, all the fortune, the family, everything, and you still find that that didn't bring you to a place of wholeness that you thought it would. I know that one area of life that prevents most of us, maybe, many of us, from resting in peace while we're still alive is anger. True for the mother of that nine-year-old and true for the grandfather. The uh, theologian Rolf Jacobson, he's a, he's a Lutheran, and he talks about the two kinds of anger that exist in human life. One is instrumental anger, and one is permanent anger. Instrumental angle, anger serves a purpose. It has a function. It drives us, hopefully, to seek, seek to understand what's going on in a situation and work toward a solution 
to see an injustice or a stereotype or an inequity and to work toward a solution. That's instrumental anger, anger as an instrument of change and transformation. However, permanent anger is not healthy at all. Permanent anger is that stuff that festers and boils and you just are mad. That is not a healthy thing. And it is present in all kinds of folk. Permanent anger is the storm at the surface of the water that never goes away. Do you have to die to rest in peace? So many of you know of the poet David White. His words, the ability to ask beautiful questions, often in unbeautiful circumstances, is one of the great disciplines of human life. And a beautiful question starts to shape your identity as much by asking it as it does by having it answered. You just have to keep asking. Keep asking the beautiful questions in unbeautiful moments. So Jesus says, come to me, learn from me, and I will give you rest. For those of you who are really good at grammar, you'll notice that that is what we call the imperative. Come to me, learn from me. He is really being direct here. He's not saying, maybe you might want to consider. No, 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 no. This is what is called the imperative in your English textbook. Come to me. Learn from me. I will give you rest. You may have heard on the news this week about the Southern Baptist Convention. Thirteen million members in the United States, the largest Protestant denomination in this country. And the Southern Baptist Convention voted this week to affirm its position that women cannot be pastors or teachers or preachers. And then, lest anyone have any confusion about their position on this, they not only said that women can't be preachers, but they got more restrictive and said women going forward cannot have any positions of leadership in the church. Many hearts were broken by this. As the authority for their position, they point to the Bible. I don't often stand up here waving the Bible around. It's sort of a new experience for me. They point to a couple of verses in the New Testament, one of them in the book of 1 Timothy, that say, women shall not preach, teach, or have authority over men. I want to thank all of you for risking hellfire and damnation coming to hear me preach today. 
In case there's anyone in here who's doubting, that was a joke. In the United Church of Christ and the Disciples of Christ, the uh, denominations that this congregation is affiliated with, it's accepted and has been forever that people of all genders, all gender identities are fully capable of being called by God to the service of preaching. And that means no exceptions. Part of the struggle with this, though, is that with 13 million members, a lot of folks who are turned off by the church see what the Southern Baptists have done and what they see is Christianity. They don't understand the differences between denominations. They don't not understand that that's not every Christian. So today, I am feeling the presence of all those women around the world who are denied the opportunity to bring their whole selves to the service of God and to bring their entire giftedness to the church. And that's the reason that I'm carrying my grandmother's Bible with me today. It is uh, really well-worn. In the margins, and this was not her only Bible, I have multiples with lots of notes in the margins. Next to the passage that says, women shall not preach or teach or have authority in the church. In the margins, in my grandmother's beautiful artistic handwriting, it says, I do not agree with this. <laughs> and elsewhere, right in here, it says, the writer in our day would be considered a male chauvinist. Now, this Bible was a gift to my Nana from the girls' Bible class of 1957. It is 66 years old. This is not even 21st century thinking that was reflected here. My grandmother was a great theologian. She loved the Bible, but she understood the context of the time in which it was written and she understood the importance of interpreting it for our day and our context. She understood the power of a question. She spent her lifetime asking questions of a Bible and a tradition that she cherished and that she was willing to faithfully challenge. She did not need to die to rest in peace. And may it be so for you as well.